It's Philippians chapter 2, also Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We'll begin with Philippians, I can't remember which one's up there first. Philippians 1, verse 27 makes sense. It goes in order. Uh, Beginning in verse 27, it says this, above all, this is our theme verse for the entire series, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are, listen to these words, this is very important to what we're gonna talk about today. Paul Paul says this, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Now jump ahead to chapter two, beginning in verse one. Listen to what Paul says, continuing with this theme of unity and contending for the spirit. Listen to what he says. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then Paul says, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Verse three, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive, it is powerful, and it still speaks to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that in these next few moments together, as we center our attention upon your living, powerful, speaking, transforming word, I pray that you would captivate our attention this morning. Speak to every heart and every mind in this room today. Holy Spirit, help me to communicate your word with incredible boldness with clarity, with simplicity, with passion. And God, help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, I pray. And Lord, it is my desire that every person in this room this morning, myself included, may we walk out of here different than how we came in this morning because we've encountered the presence of Jesus Christ. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name, amen. We are, we are continuing our series in the book of Philippians. Really, today's message um, is really kind of a two-part message. I consider trying to tackling it all in one message, but thought otherwise. And so today, we're just going to look at really the first part of this message on unity, unity inside the body of Christ. Let me just remind you of a few things where we've been so far over the last couple of weeks. First of all, this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, it is a letter of friendship. And I've said this now every single week, but if you were to write a letter, and I know we don't write letters as often as we used to, but, but maybe consider writing an email to somebody. If you were to write an email or write a letter to an employer about a very important work task, that email or that letter is gonna look a whole lot different than a letter or an email that you write to a close friend, somebody that you deeply love. There's a difference between a formal letter written to your boss 
versus a letter of friendship that you write to somebody that is very close to you that you love. You probably won't say some of the things to your boss that you would say maybe to your spouse. And so imagine here, Paul is writing this letter, this letter of friendship. The church at Philippi has a very special place in Paul's heart. He has a very unique relationship with them. He, he has an affection for them. Um, and, and certainly, I don't, I don't know, we don't see in scripture where it says clearly that Paul had a favorite church, but you could argue at some level or in some capacity, the church at Philippi had a very unique place in Paul's heart. They were partners with him in advancing and promoting the gospel. They were supporting Paul from the very beginning. They were generous. They, they gave to the ministry. They worked with Paul by supporting him in a very generous fashion. And so because of that, Paul writes this letter. This letter, if you were to read some of his other letters, the, the, letters, the letter that he writes to the churches at Galatia had a very different tone to it. He was very frustrated with those churches. He, he actually skipped the traditional greeting or the traditional thanksgiving, and he just got right to the meat when it came to the, to the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia because he was very frustrated with where they were spiritually. But the letter that he writes to the church at Philippi had a very different tone to it. It's a friendship letter addressed to this church. And really, this is the theme of this letter so far we see that Paul is writing to believers in Philippi, people who have said yes to Jesus Christ, and he is exhorting them and instructing them to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our focus so far over the last couple of weeks has been looking at what does it look like to live to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, gospel living, gospel conduct has been our focus thus far. This is what he writes in verse 27. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news about Christ. So here's what we talked about now over the last couple of weeks. First of all, we, we looked at in week one that the source the source to this gospel living is Christ himself. In order for us to live in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize, number one, that our identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus himself. We also need to recognize and understand that, that in order for us to be useful, we are, we are called to be useful for the kingdom of God. And when our identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ, we will recognize that each one of us has a responsibility to be useful in God's kingdom. He's gifted each one of you. Each of you has a gift or gifts that you are called and must use in the context of the body of Christ to serve him and to promote and advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And we also learn that Christ himself is all sufficient. He's all that we need. There's a lot of things that are really buying for our attention in our culture today. There's a lot of things that, that we could give our attention to, that we could spend time focusing on. But at the end of the day, what we learn from scripture, what we learn in Paul's greeting to the church at Philippi is that Jesus Christ himself is all sufficient. He is all that we need. We now begin to discover, and we're gonna look at over the next several weeks as we work our way through this letter, that gospel living, gospel conduct takes on several different forms. We looked at last week 
that gospel living includes sharing in the ministry of advancing the kingdom of God. Here's the reality. We see this in Paul's letter. He's writing to this church in Philippi, and he's reminding them that they are partners in this gospel work, that they are partnering with Paul and by nature partnering with Jesus in promoting the gospel. And we learn from that that you and I, we are also partners. We get to share in the work of the ministry. You may not be a called pastor. You may not be behind this pulpit. You may be somebody that that doesn't have a call of God in their life to serve in in full-time ministry, but it doesn't matter because the reality is every single believer, every person that has said yes to Jesus, they have a role, they have a responsibility when it comes to sharing in the work of the ministry. We have a responsibility as a church to work together to advance and promote the good news, the gospel, of Jesus Christ. We looked at a very specific example last week. If you remember in the Old Testament, there is a story where Moses is standing on the mountain and down at the bottom of the, mount, uh, the, bottom of the mountain, the Israelites are in a battle against the Amalekites. And when they are at the bottom of the mountain, Joshua is actually the commander in chief. He is the one leading the charge against the Amalekites. And while they are down there, Moses is on the top of the mountain and he gets, he gets to see the whole battle unfold with his own eyes. And, and while he's standing at the top of the mountain, he's taking that rod or that staff in his hand that is anointed, that's been given to him by God. And he's holding that staff in his hand on the top of the mountain. And when he raises it in the air, the Israelites are victorious. But can you imagine, just for a second, holding a staff in your hand like this, hands lifted in the air? I mean, maybe you can do it for five minutes. Maybe some of us have a little bit more tenacity and we could do it for 15 minutes. But can you imagine holding the staff in your hand for, for an hour or, or two hours? What's going to happen? Your hands are going to start to get tired. And so what would happen is Moses' hands began to get tired. His arms began to get tired. And so he would begin to put his hands down and his arms down. And every time he did, once he did that, down in the valley, the Israelites, any time that Moses' hands were down, they began to lose the battle. And so we see in that story, there's two guys that come along, Ur, uh, Hur and a guy by the name of Aaron, Moses' brother. And what did they do? They, they partner with Moses in the ministry that God had called him to. Moses was interceding for the people down below. And as he was interceding, his staff was in his hand, but he couldn't do it alone because his hands were getting tired. His arms were getting tired. So, so two individuals, Aaron, his brother, and her, another, another Israelite, they came alongside and they began to prop up the arms of Moses. So Moses' hands could stay in the air and so they wouldn't get tired. There was one individual holding Moses' arms here and there was another individual holding his arms here, making certain that Moses' arms could stay in the air with the staff extended so that the people of God, the Israelites, could be victorious in battle. What we see in that story is that, 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 that Moses... Aaron and her, they were partnering together. There was a partnership. They were sharing the responsibility. They were sharing in the ministry of advancing the kingdom of God. And this is the point that I want us to understand from last week is that all of us in this room, we have a role. We have a responsibility. We all have been called to share in the work 
of advancing and promoting the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of us are called to be Moses and to hold our hands in the air. Some of us are called to be Aaron and to come alongside and to prop somebody else's hands up. Some of us are called to to be greeters. Some of us are called to be encouragers. Some of us are called to be hospitable. We all have a responsibility. And guess what? We get to share in that work, in that ministry of promoting the gospel. But today and next week, we're gonna really focus our attention on having and maintaining a sense of unity. Here, here's the reality, and Paul got it. Paul begins with talking about that, that, that the church at Philippi, they were partners in advancing the gospel, but here's the reality. Anytime, anytime we involve two people or more, there's always the potential for conflict, right? And, and, and so certainly I can try to do ministry by myself. Moses could have stood up there and tried to do it on his own, but, but he was going to fall short. So he needed other people to partner with him in the work of the ministry. So what we see, it's kind of this unique transition here in the letter to the church at Philippi because he talks about the partnership that exists between between him and the church at Philippi. But now he goes a bit further and he's going to recognize that in order for this partnership, in order for sharing in the work of the ministry to be successful, we need to deal with this subject of unity. Because any time, and I, I'm, I, I know that in this room alone, people that are listening online, we all have different opinions, we all have different methods, we all have different ideas, and I get that and understand that. So we have to learn, if we're gonna be effective for the kingdom of God, we have to learn how to utilize those gifts, those diverse gifts, in a manner where we can be unified, where we are one in spirit, where we are one in our intention and purpose. And so he's gonna deal with this subject of unity. Now, let me mention just a few things this morning. First of all, concerns of congregational disunity. And let me just say this, especially if you're new this morning, this is not a message I'm preaching because there's disunity in this body, all right? This is, this is just where we are in the letter to the church at Philippi. But it's an important lesson for us to understand if we're going to be effective, if we're gonna be useful for the kingdom of God, if this body of Christ is gonna see God continue to move and grow, we need to make certain that we remain unified in our purpose and in our mission that God has called us to. So that's just my disclaimer. This is not a message because there is disunity. This is a message because this is where I am in the letter and this is what God has for us today. And so I believe he wants to speak to us. So let me begin by saying, first of all, concerns of congregational disunity plagued some of the earliest churches. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It plagued the church at Corinth, probably the church that is most notorious for being um, um, outside of, of this unity aspect. They were um, certainly dysfunctional. Look at what Paul says. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in purpose and thought. And so we see from the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, there was an issue with this idea of unity. And so he wanted to address it. Let there be no divisions among you, he said, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. All right, so, so this, this is certainly a concern. Let me mention a couple of things. Disunity obviously goes against the character of God. We know that God exists uh, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is perfect unity and submission that exists. And so this idea of disunity goes against the very character of God. Disunity will cripple the church 
from accomplishing its God-given mandate. Here's the reality. If a church is divided, it is going to be very difficult for us to fulfill what God has called us to do. Disunity damages the Christian witness. If we exist and there is division and bickering and arguing among the body of Christ, believers, then what it's going to do is it's going to hurt our Christian witness in the world because they're gonna look at us and they're gonna say, wait a second, you say you're following Christ and yet when I look at you, all you're doing is arguing and bickering. You're divided and there's disunity. And so it's going to damage our ability to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. And so it cripples that witness. This is why Paul addressed the issue with the church in Corinth because he wanted to make certain that their witness was pure and that their witness would be effective. And that's why he says, let there be no divisions among you. Now to achieve unity among the human race, this is certainly a desirable and a noble cause. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 133, says this, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe, as if the dew of her moan were following on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So this was certainly a desirable call, not just for, for the, the Israelite people, but for all believers, this desire for unity, all the way back to Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. For there, look at the end of that Psalm, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. So there is great fruit that comes forth when God's people are unified. Does that mean we all have to, to share the same opinion? Does that mean we all have to have people who like the color blue? No. Does that mean we have to all like the exact same songs? No. Does it mean we, we all have to do things the same way? No. We're, we're diverse in those things, but when we can come together and be unified in our intentions, in our purpose, in our mission to see the gospel promoted and the kingdom of God advance, when we can be unified around that, we will see great spiritual fruits. Unity was also a concern among the Philippian believers, though likely not as pressing as it was in Corinth. It's likely here in our letter that Paul had, had received a word from Epaphroditus. We'll talk more about him later. He was a friend of Paul's. He was the one that would actually, while Paul is in prison, he will travel back and forth. He will give Paul a report about the church in Philippi, and then he'll hand the letter to Epaphroditus, and he'll go to this church, and he'll deliver the letter to them. So it's likely Paul received some type of word from him that some friction existed inside this newer church. The language of Paul's letter hints at this concern. He says in chapter one that they are to stand firm in one spirit, that they are to be intent on one purpose. And so he's writing this because there appears to be at some level, maybe not to the level of the Corinth church, but at some level, there is some friction that is beginning to unfold. We see this later in chapter four, verse two. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So internally inside the church, there was some friction. There was some division, maybe not to the same degree as the church in Corinth, but it existed nonetheless. Therefore, Paul saw it important to address the matter. Unity is a characteristic of one living in a manner worthy of the gospel. But here's the question that I want us to address for just a few moments this morning. How is this unity achieved? 
Paul's instructions to the church in Philippi, I believe, begin to answer this question. We're going to answer it today, and we're going to answer it next week. Um, and we're gonna look more specifically next week at, at what is referred to as the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, verses five through 11. We're gonna look more specifically at the example of Christ that is given to us when it comes to our call to live as unified believers. Three things that I wanna share with you, and I'll give these to you quickly. Number one, unity is possible when believers become aware that we already have shared experiences with one another that should unite us and not divide us. You and I as believers, we already have shared experiences with one another, whether you know it or not. You may not share the same color liking. You may not share the same like of songs. You may not share the same like of styles, but the reality is as believers, you and I already have shared experiences that should unite us as believers and not divide us. As an example, being united with Christ, we, we read about this in Ephesians chapter one, being united with Christ guarantees every believer every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, verse three, and an inheritance that is given to us from God. So if you've said yes to Christ, you and I who have said yes to Jesus, we get to share in the spiritual blessings that have been given to us by God. And so we already have that shared experience. This promise in reality should unite us and not divide the church. We should find joy in the fact that we get to share in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms and that we get to share in that experience. We should be excited that we have an inheritance that is given to us from God because we've said yes to Jesus. We should also be excited. If we've said yes to Jesus, you and I have a hope that one day we're gonna stand in the presence of God. We're gonna gather around a throne with people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and we're gonna lift our hands in worship. We're gonna glorify and praise God. And I can tell you right now, the concerns that you have now will all fade away when we are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We already, as believers, we have shared experiences that should unite, not divide us. Paul reminds the believers through the use of these rhetorical questions in chapter two that there are several shared experiences that are already afforded them because they belong to Jesus. Look at chapter two, verse one again. It says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. I wanna stop there for just a moment. There's several rhetorical questions that, that Paul presents to the church at Philippi. But what he's doing is he is noting and showing them that there are already many shared experiences that they have or should have since they are believers in Christ. He says, therefore, so in light of what I just said, in light of my, my statement to you to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he goes into these rhetorical questions, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and he's gonna go on and say, make my joy complete by having the same love, being like-minded for the sake of Christ. So here's what I want you to see. Some of these shared experiences that you and I have probably already had or will have at some point because we've said yes to Jesus. Number one, in a season of discouragement, if you've walked through a time of discouragement, if you walk through a time of loneliness, you certainly at some point in time have experienced the encouragement and the nearness of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, the Holy Spirit consoles, 
Christ is the consolation. The Holy Spirit is the one that will console us, is the one that will encourage us. And Christ himself, who came in the form of man, is the one who is the consolation. In a season of suffering, so as believers, my guess is if you haven't experienced any form of suffering and heartache, I don't wanna prophetically speak that over you, but the reality is if we say yes to Jesus, scripture is clear that we will face persecution, we will face suffering, we will face hardship. So in a season of suffering and heartache, we have been recipients of God's comfort of love. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses three through four, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our what? He is our merciful Father, and he is the source of all comfort. He, God, comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given to us. Here's what I want you to see. There is no circumstance where God cannot offer comfort. He is the source of all comfort. So, so one of the shared experiences that you and I have as believers saying yes to Jesus is that when we are walking through a period of heartache and suffering, we can guarantee, be guaranteed, that we will in some form or fashion experience the comfort of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes it may be a supernatural comfort that we receive from Jesus himself, but folks, sometimes the comfort that we receive may be from another brother or sister in Christ. Look at what he says. He says that God is our merciful father, source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. And so don't, uh, if you're walking through a hardship or a season in life where you're experiencing suffering, don't always wait around for just the supernatural comfort because sometimes comfort is coming, but it's coming in the form of another brother or sister in Christ who is present with you. And, And so certainly we've been recipients of that. That's one of those shared blessings that we get to receive because we've said yes to Jesus. But I want you to see this. It's also what he says in Philippians. It is a comfort of love. Pastor David Guzik describes this comfort, not as a motherly comfort where where the mother picks up the child or or cradles a, a crying child, but more of a manly comfort that says, come, let me come beside you and strengthen you. And so one of, the, one of the shared experiences that you and I have as believers, as we get to experience the comfort of a heavenly father, that doesn't just say, let me cradle you, let me pick you up as you, as you weep. No, we get to experience this comfort of love that says, let me come beside you and let me strengthen you. Let me remind you of my faithfulness and my goodness. Folks, if you said yes to Jesus, Maybe you've not experienced that just yet, but I can promise you there will be a moment in your life where you will have the opportunity to experience that comfort of love. And what an incredible privilege that is. We have the privilege as believers of sharing in the fellowship of the spirits. Koinia is that word fellowship in the Greek. And it speaks of of sharing of things in common such as one of the things that we have in common is that the moment you say yes to Jesus, you and I, every believer, has the Holy Spirit indwelling in their life. 
Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you the moment that you say yes to Jesus, not 75%, not 80%, not 99.9% of the Spirit, but the moment you committed your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, and that is a shared experience that we all get to have, and we should be thankful for the Holy Spirit filling our lives. We have been recipients of Christ's affection and his compassion. We know that Jesus, he had a compassion for the lost. Jesus will often tell parables or stories. One of the parables we know the, in Luke chapter 15 where he goes, uh, gives us the parable of the lost son or the parable of the lost sheep where, where they leave behind the 99 and pursue after the one. It shows us and that reveals to us the heart of the God that we serve, God who pursues the lost. And here's the reality, though you've said yes to Jesus, all of us at some point in our life, we were all lost. We were all sinners. We all fell short of the glory of God. And guess what? God pursued you. He pursued me. And he's still pursuing those who are far from him. We've been recipients of that compassion as he pursued us. Now, the path toward unity begins by having a constant awareness that we have shared Christian experiences that allow you and I to relate to one another. So here's really the call for the church. We should not be a church that dwells on and concentrates on those things which divide us. We can certainly talk about which political party we're from. We can talk about what styles of worship we like. But if all we do is focus on the things that are gonna divide us rather than unite us, then we might as well move on. But let's be a church instead that gives attention to those things that unite us. We are spirit-filled believers. We have the Holy Spirit living in our life who convicts us, who transforms us, who changes us, who is our advocate, who, who leads us into all truth. Let's focus on that. We, we also need to recognize you and I, as believers, we have a shared mission and purpose. It's very clear. We're, we've been given a mandate. We've been given a commission. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That wasn't just for called preachers. That wasn't just for, for called church leaders. That is for every believer. We are to share in that mission to make disciples who proclaim the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to serve Christ, and we are to serve the church with joy. We are well on our way to destination unity when we have an awareness of our shared experiences inside the body of Christ. Those are things that we need to celebrate. Oftentimes, I think where, where we get into trouble is that we will often, inside the body of Christ, focus on things that divide, focus on things that cause disunity, instead of focusing on the fact that you and I, as believers, we have some shared experiences that should bring us incredible joy. And if we focus on those things, we can begin to allow the other things that are, that are peripheral, that are not as important, to begin to fade out of the way so we can be focused on what Christ has called us to do. Number two, <laughs> unity. Unity is possible when believers understand the seriousness of the issue. Paul knew that if he did not address the minor friction that likely plagued the church in Philippi, then matters could get out of hand. Here's the reality. A problem left unresolved 
becomes a bigger problem. That's not in the Bible. Um, those words, that phrase, you can find that theme there, but, but that's just my heart to you this morning. A problem that is left unresolved will become a bigger problem. And so Paul could have ignored it, but Paul knew that if he ignored the friction that existed in the church at Philippi, that they could, be like, they could become like the church in Corinth where there was division, where there, was, where there were factions and groups and there was great disunity in the church. So he decided not to let it go unresolved and instead he dealt with the issue. Paul made a personal appeal to the church from a pastoral heart to understand and address the issue of unity. Listen to what he says. He says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. Paul cared deeply about this church and he wants them to understand the gravity of disunity. Therefore, he has this personal and pastoral concern in his voice. And what he's really saying to them, he's saying to this church, if you so deeply care about me, Paul says, in my imprisonment, then make me happy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being unified. Paul's saying, if you truly care about me here in my imprisonment, then why don't you get along in the church so that you can be effective for the kingdom of God? And so you can hear the pastoral concern and heart and tone of Paul when he writes to his friends. He's saying, make me happy, make my joy complete by being unified. Because if you are unified, then I know what I've done for the cause of Christ is fruitful because it will continue to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question, do we understand, truly understand the gravity of disunity inside the body of Christ? This is not an issue that can be addressed flippantly or treated in a common fashion. Here's a few things I want you to understand. And again, I'm not speaking to this church specifically, just giving us the warning that Paul gives to us in scripture. Number one, a divided church is a dying church. If, if the church begins to sow seeds of division, it will suck the life out of the church and it will begin to die. The focus, here's what's happen, here's what, here is what will happen when sow, sowing seeds of division begins to take place. Uh, the focus will shift to the internal conflict. And what does that do? It keeps the church from being outward focused, community centered and loss driven. And so if there's division inside the church, all of a sudden, all of our attention goes to, to what's happening inside the body that we ignore the community, we ignore the people that God has called us to reach. And so we need to make certain, we need to make certain that, that we are not a divided church. A divided church is a passionate less church. If there is division among us, we will lose our passion and our fervor and our aim to please Christ and Christ alone. Number three, a divided church will breed conflict, not conversion. It will breed conflict, not, diver not conversion. Folks, I want us to be a church that, that where people come in here, they will experience the presence of Christ. And as they do, their hearts will be transformed and changed. But if we are divided, if there is conflict, then it will be very hard for conversion, for transformation to happen. Now, God can do um, exceedingly and abundantly. He can work even above our own conflict, but let's not make it harder than it needs to be. And so if we are unified, then we will see a church where there is conversion and transformation happening. Number four, a divided church loses its influence in the kingdom of God. If we are centered on ourselves, if we are centered on conflict and that's all we are about and we're divided, then our influence for the kingdom of God will begin to fade. That's why Paul addresses the church, even though it may be minor friction now, 
he understood the gravity of the issue. If this problem began to expand, then he knew that this church that was so useful for the kingdom of God could begin to fade in their usefulness in this partnership that God has called them to. Let's never downplay the call and need for unity inside the body of Christ. It was so significant that Paul will repeat what he's already said in chapter one. He will repeat it again in verse two. Here in Philippians, he says to be like-minded, to have the same love, and work together with one purpose. The call to be unified is vital. Number three, and finally, unity is possible when we work to eliminate our natural inclination towards selfish living. It's easy to say, (laughs) hard to do. By nature, human beings are selfish. But here's what I want you to see. Look at verses three through four, and I'll give this to you quickly and we'll be done. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceits, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's the key to unity. Let me just give you these three things very simply. Number one, let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. The natural human tendency is not to do something out of love for someone else, but the natural human tendency is to do it for personal gain or advancement. Folks, that's, that's, that's the way of the flesh. The flesh wants to promote self. The flesh wants to advance our own personal agendas. But if we're gonna be believers who say yes to Jesus, then we need to make certain that we're not walking by the flesh, but walking by the spirit that lives inside of us. So we have to put to death those fleshly desires. So our desire is to be selfish, to have that selfish ambition to promote self. But the way of the spirit says, I need to put those desires to death and I need to promote one thing and one thing alone. And that is a person and that is Jesus Christ. So our ambitions are often selfish in nature. But here's what I want you to see. Don't get me wrong. Paul is not criticizing and speaking against all ambition, just selfish ambition. This desire to promote or advance self. That's what he's saying. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. He's not against ambition. Paul was ambitious. He was ambitious when it came to promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said earlier in chapter one of Philippians, he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was ambitious when it came to the gospel. We should be ambitious when it comes to promoting the gospel at all costs. But our ambitions should not be selfish in nature. Let nothing be done out of selfish ambition. Number two, let nothing be done out of empty conceit. This can also mean empty glory. It just simply means to think too highly or favorably of ourself. Let me me just help you all out. Yes, you guys are all awesome. You are all great. You don't need to think too highly of yourselves. I just did it for you, okay? All right, you're all awesome. You're all great. Um, so, So let's put aside that empty glory and that empty conceit. It is the mindset that says this, that that I think too highly of myself. And when we do that, if all we do is think too highly of myself, imagine what kind of havoc and destruction that does inside the body of Christ. If, if, If I'm trying to promote my own agenda, if I'm trying to promote my own desires, if I'm trying to promote self, if I think too highly of self, imagine the destruction that can take place inside the body of Christ. The body of Christ that exists to do what? That exists to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why this call to unity is so important. And finally, 
key to unity is this. In lowliness of mind or humility, we are to esteem or think of others better than self. Thinking of others better than self is an attitude that is contrary to our world. In ancient Greek, this idea of, of considering lowliness of mind or humility was actually considered a fault, not a virtue. Somebody that, that esteemed to this idea of humility, that esteemed to this idea of lowliness of mind in ancient Greek was considered a fault, not a virtue. In the pagan world and even today, it is encouraged by many to impose our own will on other people. Yet Paul's call is just the opposite. It is a call to bend down and to serve. Lowliness of mind, this idea of creaturelessness. If we can learn to esteem others better than self, then we will develop, look, we will develop a natural concern for others. We can put aside selfish desires. We can develop a natural concern and interest for others. We will become, here's, what's, here's what will happen. If we put aside selfish ambition and empty conceit and, and we esteem others better than self, when we do those things, here will be the result. We will become outward or other-centered. And when we become outward or other-centered, we will no longer have the disunity and conflict that could arise inside the body, look out, I want you to see this, not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Let me, just as a quick sidebar, let me say this. Paul is not saying, don't take care of your own interests. He's not saying just, you know, you, you, you disappear and you do nothing. He says, look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others, which is very key. Would you stand with me this morning let me end with this statement. Imagine how effective and useful the body of Christ could be and will be if selfish ways are put behind her and every single one of us in this room, we have a natural concern and an interest in others. Imagine with me for just a moment how effective, how useful the body of Christ can and will be. If we can learn to not walk in the ways of the flesh, the way of the flesh is to promote self, to promote our own agenda, to impose our will on others. But if we can learn to walk by the spirit that lives inside of every single one of us, and we can put to death those fleshly, worldly ways. Imagine, imagine what God can do through a unified body. Imagine what God can do in reaching a community for Christ when the very people he called imperfect human beings, every single one of us in this room, if you think you're perfect, you're not, sorry, I'm not either. But imagine what he can do through us. We have different opinions. We have different preferences. We have our own agendas. But if we can learn to put to death those fleshly ways and work together as partners, sharing in the work of the ministry, 
Imagine, don't imagine what you can do because it's not us. Imagine what God can do through a unified body. Folks, we've been praying for people here in this community. 1,400 in Dunkirk alone who are lost, unchurched, far from Christ. 13,000 in Jay County. And the only way, the only way we will reach those who are far from Christ is when we learn as a body to be unified. Put aside, yes, we all have our opinions, we all have our preferences, we all have our agendas, but if we can work together, it's a privilege. We get to share in the work of the ministry. But if we can learn to work together, if we are unified in that purpose and in that mission, imagine, imagine what God can do, not just here in this church, but imagine what he will do in Dunkirk, Jay County, East Central Indiana, Indiana, and across the globe. When God's people are unified, when they're unified, God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. He is a great God, and I'm thankful he can work through our messes. I'm thankful he still moves and he still works when we're, when we're dysfunctional, because that might be the norm. But... But look how much more can occur and happen if we're unified. So my prayer, my prayer for this church, my prayer for you, my prayer for us, my prayer for me, prayer for you and your families is that you would seek out and pursue this unity Paul is calling the church to. Same love, same purpose, same mind. Next week, we're gonna see it at an even greater level. The greatest example that has been given to us told you I wouldn't get there to it today. So that's why I prefaced that at the beginning. But the greatest example we'll have, Paul will say in verse five, we are to have the mind of who? Christ. And we're gonna see one of the greatest examples of humility, service, and unity in the person of Christ. And that is who we are to model. This is a healthy and life-giving church. This is a church that will be useful in God's kingdom. This is a church that will have incredible influence in the kingdom of God. The greatest example comes in the person of Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me this morning?